Welcome to the Educate US podcast with your host, Nick Saveri, Dr. Stacy Schultz, and Dr. Patrice Fenton. Three former teachers and administrators talking about a wide range of topics happening in education. Time to educate us. This is a unique opportunity for us because the three of us are actually all together. Uh, we are just hanging out. We were catching up and we're just, we, you know, we talked about today of getting together in person. It's like the first time that Patrice and I have actually been, you know, together in the same space. Uh, but as an opportunity to, to you know, do one of the episodes of this great show in person. So getting together, we talked about, and really, you know, we're in the midst of summer, you know, it just became, you know, it's now just early August and we sit and think often about the summer, you know, both rest, but also learning uh, for our own personal benefit, our own professional benefit. And interestingly, we've now we're coming off of a learning a learning event. Patrice Stacey and I all participated in a recent event that took place with one of the, you know one of the organizations that we partner with. So, you know, we were all just sitting and debriefing on what we noticed there, but also in general, when we think about learning for t- when we think about learning specifically professional development. And I find I'm sometimes hesitant of using that phrase because it's it's such a it's both a loaded term, but it has a lot of negative connotations, deservedly so. But what I sat with was, you know, when we think about successful professional learning, and there's again a whole bevy of conversations around that. But what stood out to us, and also celebrating, you know, we looked at what what our attendees said last week, overwhelmingly positive, and it just kind of stood out to us. So. So Patrice, I'll go to you first because you were working on the other side of this from a curriculum standpoint. So you were helping you were helping facilitators get in the headspace of what they're really going to dive into with their attendees. But you were also taking on that you know monumental task of like going through content, thinking of sequencing, and you know when you thought about the different topics that were originally presented by teachers and leaders that asked us to focus on, what were some things that stood out to you? Well, I, I remember conferring with our partners and the fact that they wanted to make sure all of the wellness topics were included. Mm. And this is something that I've noticed since the pandemic. And it's something that I've always been passionate about prior to. Um, so it was really refreshing to note that they wanted to make sure that that was part of the work we were doing. Um, I think that teachers are I always say this, they're amazing human beings. And I don't just say that because I, I am one or used to be one, I would call it. Um, but they're just under a tremendous strain. So I, I as I was building and I, I was tasked with basically creating the, the materials for that bucket of work, all of the wellness content. Um, so thinking about like, what's gonna be most meaningful, looking at like our prior work and how we focus a lot on like, the science, at least some of the content looked at like the scientific part of like wellness or executive functioning and things like that, and how, you know, the brain is impacted. Mm. And I thought, you know, this is important information, but also that I don't want them to spend too much time thinking about that. I want them to think about like the experiential part of wellness and what that means in their classroom. So yes, executive, executive functioning means this, this part of the brain, sure. But what does it look like when you're looking at a young person and 
you know, you, you have thoughts that go through your mind that like they're lazy or they don't want to do work or they're not interested or when really it could be this other issue that actually has been triggered by some other situations that they might be dealing with. So those are the things that stuck out to me um, mostly. And then, of course, just, you know, thinking about the other things like, you know, and teachers speak differentiation and all that kind of thing. Um, but the wellness piece, I think, is something that we're going to continue to see as a topic that more and more schools are going to want to tackle. Just a literacy moment there. You mentioned executive functioning. For our mm-hmm. listeners, can you put a, can you apply a definition to that? It's essentially like the ability to plan and prioritize and organize yourself. Um, and this is something that a lot of young people struggle with, and particularly once they get to middle school as they're making that transition from being in a class, one classroom all day to having to go through many classrooms and many teachers and different teaching styles and different groups of young people potentially. Um, but being able to organize, and I, I think it's interesting because I think about adults. A lot of adults don't have really strong mm-hmm. executive functioning skills. Mm-hmm. And it just made me remember um, when I was teaching, because I taught middle school, they're my favorite group to teach. Um, we made a push to like, we should really just be teaching this. Like, yes, content, ELA, math, science, sure, that's important. But we really should just be teaching young people at that particular age range how to organize themselves, how to prioritize things how to seek help, how to understand how they learn and how best to position themselves in the classroom, how best to interact with peers um, and all of that. Um, So yeah, it's a huge part of how we learn. It's also just a huge part of how we like function Mm -hmm. as as the name implies um, Mm -hmm. as humans. Um, So I think it's, I think it's something that, and I was glad to see that um, our partners wanted to focus on that because I think it's something that's important for adults as well. Now, as I said at the start, Stacey and I were facilitators at this event. So, Stacey, just over to you. What was one of the sessions that you were that you were leading? And just to Patrice's point about sort of at the macro level, taking a temperature of your audience, what was resonating at this time of year is being priorities, but also where did that you see that? Where did you feel their energy show up the most in the work that you were in the work that you were doing as a, as a presenter last week? So Nick, I had the opportunity to both present and create the content. Um, So had some, you know, fluency and decision-making opportunities like, you know, Patrice mentioned of, yeah, we want to include like, what is the cognitive um, research behind all, anything, any topic, right? And, And what else shows up in research but also really quickly applying it to practice, right? How does that show up in experience? How does that show up in curiosity? Uh, What does this mean about implementing this in the classroom? And one thing, you know, I'll I'll make a broader statement to whenever you're trying something new, right? Um, and, And they talk about this often when they talk about New Year's resolutions, right? How they don't really stick. Um, because oftentimes, you know, it's like this grandiose statement idea that you're going to take on this new behavior this year and you're going to really stick to it. Um, And so one thing I really try to keep in mind with uh, the teachers that I was working alongside last week was, well, what learning, how can this learning really be broken down and implemented in a bite-sized way that already connects to what you're doing? in the classroom. So really giving that like practical, tactical thinking of 
Okay, so this is the step that you're committing to. Where does that fit? What does that look like? And how will you really embrace that um, over time? How do you then, like, once you kind of meet this benchmark, what does it look like to grow that practice forward? See, now you're hitting on an interesting idea because you just developed, you just described a practice and essentially a skeleton to what effective professional learning is, you know, what is most helpful. I'm going to ask you both when done right. I think I agree with you, Stacey. I think that's where it gets to. But when it's not applied properly or when it's just or when that's not there, what are the type of experiences? I'm going to ask you both to sort of put step back a little bit as educators. Where have you seen it just go wrong? And I bring this up because for many of for many of our listeners in the education space, this is unfortunately the world that they live in often. Yeah, when the school year returns, in-service takes place, not the most effective of thinking is going on by by school leaders, administrators, and not out of malice, just the challenge of, you know, my team is coming back. What can I be able to address that is something that's important, or at least as a leader, I define it as important, and something I want to be able to provide to all my teachers. And that alone is a challenge. And to that end, yeah, just sort of you both reflecting on what yeah, what experiences have you both had? Positive or positive or negative, but just I like the skeleton you just described, Stacey. And you know, where does that where is that present? And when it's not, what just what goes sideways? Uh, Stacey or Patrice, I'll go to you first. So I think a number of things come up for me. I think about just competing priorities in school buildings, where like as an example, district could be saying we want to focus on this thing, but a principal could know actually my teachers need this other thing. Um, and so the principal may end up being, you know, held accountable to pushing a certain learning agenda for their teachers that doesn't really align with the needs uh, that they see in the building. Um, and then that trickle down obviously gets to the teachers and then they're disgruntled and it's like, oh, why are we learning this? I don't care about this. I don't need this, whatever the case might be. Um, so I think that's one thing. So I was, when I was in my master's program, I had this amazing, amazing professor um, Steve Schriefter was passed away. Um, and he told us, we read something about subversive teaching mm. and it really stuck with me. Um, and so it, it just makes me wonder like the extent, I just think principals don't have the capacity to even think like this, but okay, I have this mandate from the district. How can I subversively include what my teachers actually need, I think is the way. Um, but again, I don't know that they always have the space to think that way. And then they end up putting things in front of their teachers that just don't stick, don't resonate, um, feel meaningless. Um, the other thing that I think about is, and this has happened to me, um, like having coaches come into our building and we work in this space, right? So I'm familiar with it on both ends of the spectrum. But folks who come into this space and are just not familiar with the context, so you have people coming in and they just don't, they they want to support and they're well-meaning, um, but they just don't have, quite honestly, a clue of what it is like to be, and I taught in a self-contained setting. So mm -hmm. um, this is a group of 12 students who all have special education labels mm -hmm. um, and who are more often than not ostracized in the school community um, and are dealing with like, you know, stereotype threat and uh, labels and things like that. So point is like just getting people who are not really familiar with the context, I think is also another way that it tends to go south. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, as Patrice was talking, something that struck me too is that sometimes the school leaders also think teachers want something, but teachers want something else <laughs> or need and and want need and want something else. And I think that trickles down and students need and want something else from their classroom experience and parents want need and want something else from their school experience. Um, so really taking the time to pause and understand like what the community needs and wants are from the start of uh, of planning, learning and is is really important and sometimes a mix a missed step. Um, and I think another thing that can happen or often happens, and you can read a lot about this, right? Is that one-off PD idea or this kind of workshop or thing happens three times a year. And there's like a heavy download of information and ideas. And, and maybe it is even more interactive and, and uh, allows for space for application and creation. However, it then they don't see it again or pick it back up until January, right? And so I think even with when sort of the things are all in place, like thinking about if you're doing this learning, how as a community do we hold ourselves accountable and what are the expectations we have of how this learning will get embedded? And then how do we support each other in that and or bring outside providers to support that through like coaching, you know, to really help make it happen across time because a, a one and done learning is not usually enough. <laughs> Your website should be a marketing asset, not an engineering challenge. Empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams, Webflow combines the power of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and places them all in a completely visual canvas. Trusted by companies like Lattice and Discord, it changes the way marketers, designers, and engineers create for the web. Now you can build the site you want without the dev time. Start building for free at webflow.com. I'll offer here that something that comes up for me a lot is even beyond the summer, but looking at over the course of a year. And the example I always give to leaders is the idea of think of a pie chart. A lot of the communities I've worked with have very limited time with their entire team. Mm -hmm. Often it's maybe once a month. And I do the math with folks and say, okay, well, it's 10 months of the year. Let's say it's an hour. Well, that's 10 hours. And if I have you draw a pie chart and tell you where are you spending your time and energy against developing your, supporting your teacher's development of their actual practice, versus what is often, a friend of mine once said this to me, it's so true, administrivia, right? When you're giving information to people to say, well, you know, information about all these school events and things like that. And then what's your third pocket? You know, what is that time being spent off? I look at, you know, over the course of 600 minutes, you know, where am I being, where am I being most effective? And can we really change that, di that diagram? Um, I'll ask you both one last question as we start to think of the other thing that comes up for us when we think about summer learning here is as leaders are in this space right now, it's August 2nd. So some schools are about a week away from opening. Others are about five weeks from opening. What is one tip you would offer to a leader when they're sitting with the idea of kicking off a professional learning experience for their teachers? As they're sitting in their offices or sitting in their homes, getting ready, pen to pad, 
for you both, what is something you would like to impart to school or district leaders as they start to think about a a, a plan for upcoming professional learning for the upcoming upcoming professional learning for this year? Uh, Stacey, I'll go to you first. Well, I think Patrice and I speak about this in our book, and we talk about it often, but having that collective vision. Uh, having collective leadership, having collective impact. And and so I think as you start the year, really having opportunity for everyone to get on the same page around what are the important priorities as uh, a school community is stepping into that coming school year and why are they the important priorities and also making some decisions about, well, how will you gain that a collective movement around it. Like, what will that mean and look like? Because every community is different in the way that they approach that. And so no judgment on how you do that, but being really mindful about that and having a plan for that. So, uh, and, I, and I think that's how you really should be kicking it off. Let's all get on the same page. And then sharing out, maybe um, I always love to have okay here are some learnings we are going to do aligned to this and here are where there's options right here's where we can redefine that together as we go based on what we're trying to do uh i'm also a big proponent of you know uh, as in collective leadership that idea that there are experts and 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 people in the room that know and can support these different pieces so how do you leverage them from the start Right. And how do you create that space for others to step up and step into it? Uh, so those are some things that come to mind for me as we're starting off the school year. Patrice, what about you? Uh, it's so funny because Stacey basically said what I was going to say. Friends, <laughs> <laughs> aren't we? Um, talk about it. <laughs> totally evident. Um, but yeah, I want to underscore just really tapping into the school community. There's so much expertise there. And I think oftentimes that goes overlooked. And quite honestly, principals should be thinking about ways to take things off their plates. Mm. And this is one way you can leverage the talent that's in the building. There's tons of it, right? So think about ways to tap into that talent. Um, the other thing that comes up for me is just ask questions. Like, what do you want to learn? It's really simple. And ask them and think about ways to invite them into making it happen. And I think the other thing is just kind of tied into what, um, Stacey was saying about like that sequence. I know what I found really helpful was um, intervisitations and teachers get very, very territorial about their classrooms. Um, so it depends on kind of the culture of the building. But I know I learned a great deal by watching my colleagues. So how can you create space in scheduling? So being able to like think more creatively about scheduling to free up teachers time so that they can go and visit with each other and unpack. Um, and there are tons of protocols that are available to help teachers mm -hmm. to do that sort of work together. It can happen in teacher teams. I think we did it in our grade team, if I'm not mistaken. You could do it in content area teams. You could put, put together a special team uh, around maybe a specific topic or a specific, a specific uh, pedagogical practice. There's all kinds of ways to do it. But um, yeah, giving teachers time to kind of be with each other and learn from each other, I think is really key. Transitioning from one form of summer learning, let's think about another another experience that we all go through in the summer, which in the form of summer learning, but also summer enjoyment, is reading. This is a conversation that on this show we've talked about probably a few times, 
But on that topic, just as human beings, just as learners, educators, however you want to label us, thinking about the books that we're seeing now listed. And if you do any Google search on banned books, you'll see so many different lists here. For this conversation today, we consulted both Powell's list of banned books um, and also the the list for Penn's list as well, right? And so what we're going to do here, we have a little bit of fun. Fun's a loaded word here because this, this is a little sad too to talk about these books in this way. But we're all going to just basically do a round robin. We're going to select three books that we've seen on three books that have appeared on banned lists and just talk about reaction to them. What these books speak to us as we want to share when we read them. That's awesome. But what came up for us as to potentially why not even justifying the why, because there's a lot of problematic reasons that are shared. um, But like what came up to us when we saw this book listed. And now when I mention the reasons why I want to, at the start of this, just talk about some of the generic reasons that get brought up, not necessarily generic, but when you look at sort of thematically what gets brought up and a couple of examples are books being considered politically, racially, or socially offensive. And we're going to unpack really what's problematic about that concept. The other one that comes up too is about being sexually explicit. Examples include that there is a display of nudity at some point in the text and One that comes up often is the idea of age appropriateness. Now, the age appropriate one is always interesting because, you know, for, you know, we're all of my, you know, my co-host and I, we're all roughly the same age. So we all remember when we think about music, you in the late 80s and 90s and the onset of having the um, explicit label sticker that was put on records because this idea was being brought up by Congress of all places that some music was considered inappropriate for children or people of of, uh, certain ages. So with all that in mind, we're going to go through just our respective lists. What we've been thinking about is just the top three books that stand out to us, not necessarily the three books that we find most important from this list, but three books that we have a personal relationship with that we really had just a WTF moment, for, for lack of a better phrase, of seeing it on a list of banned books. And folks, anytime a book is listed, it's because even if just one school district has taken it off its shelf, it's important enough to add it to these lists. And funny enough, the opposite side to this is that when you go to most bookstores, Barnes and Noble being a good example, those books are actually appearing on a separate table that if you are curious as to why they've been banned, or it's something that you've read before that you want to re-engage with, it's readily available, which is the great irony of all this, because in the end, it boosts sales. So Stacy, starting with you here first, what would be your of your of the three books that came to you? Let's just start with one. What is one book that was featured on a banned list that just jumped out to you, gave you that same, as I put it before, sort of a WTF moment? Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's as we talked before, it's really hard to just name a few <laughs> um, that really stood out. But according to a. LA American Librarians Association or Library Association. Um, Blue, the Bluest Eye was a book that really stood out to me. And it's the third most challenged book of 2022. Wow. And Toni Morrison, for those who have read, Toni Morrison has many books, a really phenomenal writer who really captures the essence of humanity and the characters and you can really under well I don't want to say understand but you can experience 
the world of her characters through her words. Uh, and the bluest eye, while it really, uh, it goes through some really challenging issues that the characters face, it also has a very common um, connection that we all experience of not always feeling like we necessarily belong for one reason or another. And I think that's an important, there's so many important themes in this book to explore and read and discuss, but also just at the essence, anyone can relate to this idea of feeling challenged to, to love themselves all the time and really embrace themselves because of the messages they might be receiving from one place or another, um, whether that's, you know, in a school or and and that happens often for many of our students whose characters are represented in these stories and where you know the books allow that opportunity to both see yourself but also understand people's experiences differently obviously not fully understand because you if you're not experiencing it yourself, <laughs> um, but also have an opportunity to have these important conversations. So the one that stuck out to me immediately was The Alchemist. I'm like, every time I see it, I'm just like so taken aback. Um, this book, first, is one of my like top five favorite books of all time. Um, so it's actually like, they talk about offensive, like it's offensive to me that this book is on mm -hmm. this list. Um, it's an incredibly, and I think Paulo Coelho is just an, an incredible author in general. And speaking of summer reading, I'm currently rereading his book, The Warrior of Light, which is a companion to The Alchemist. Um, I actually wanted to read a quote from the book that I pulled up from Google. So it says, we are travelers on a cosmic journey, stardust, swirling and dancing in the eddies and whirlpools of infinity. Mm. Life is eternal. We have stopped for a moment to encounter each other, to meet, to love, to share. This is a precious moment. It is a little parentheses in eternity. I'm like, how do you ban that? That is insane. <laughs> and that's the thing with most of these books on this list. When I look at the books, I'm like, at least for the ones that I've had the pleasure of reading, and there are quite a few on the list that I have read, um, they're just amazing pieces of literature. Like the, they're just beautifully written. And for me, The Alchemist is mm -hmm. one of these. It's just mind boggling to me. And this book is really about, I mean, he talks about this idea of a personal legend and it's really about um, someone really going on a journey. And just as the quote that I just read sort of indicates, it's like even this space that we're sharing right now, right? We get to share this moment of, in time. It's like blip in like the whole, like idea of like the, the cosmic timeline, if you will. Um, and the book just really illuminates that. So it's just, it's weird to me that a book of this nature, it's weird to me that we would have a banned book list in general. Like that's mm -hmm. just, it's bizarre. But a book like this being there is, it's incredibly odd. I'm I, I, I'm not shy about saying I'm an incredibly spiritual woman. Um, and this book for me is like part of like my spiritual, like not armor, but it's one of my go-tos, right? It's mm. it, it, I've read it two or three times at this point. I'll, I'll read it again, I'm sure. Um, but it just, it, it, it speaks to me in a way that, um, 
I, I can't even really explain. So it's like the idea that we want to send a message that in some way this book should not be read to me. It's just, it's not only criminal, <laughs> but it, it's it's potentially robbing folks of an, a, an experience that they get to have um, that could actually really support them. And I think that's true for all of these books, right? And that's what the beauty of reading is. You get you get to go on a journey, right? And this particular book is is a very much about that. So it it really struck me to see it there in a really, really like highly, highly offensive way. Mm-hmm. So on to me. So the first one, see, Patrice, you brought up a really good point of the idea of was the phrase you use spiritual armor? Yes. Okay. Um and that resonated with me because it, it helped rethink for me the books that came to mind is mm-hmm. books that that help provide that to me, the books that spark passion for me, but spark um, a sense of of my values. And the first book that came to mind for me, and this is actually where my relationship with banned books really kind of began most recently, was the graphic novel Mouse by Art Spiegelman. And what I heard was that there was a school district or a particular, I think either a district or a school in Tennessee that had argued that the book was deemed inappropriate because it had a scene um, that was considered sexually explicit. Now, is it comical that a graphic novel has a a a, a female character where her like louse is lowered so you could see see a breast or something like that? Um, and that was enough reason for the book to be not available to to some audiences. And what always, well, not always, but at the moment, what really hurt me was that for one, I find the book extremely accessible and as a really good entry point to understanding really the beginnings of the horrors of the Holocaust. I mean, the book dis- the book t- talks about a person sharing their experience with really one of their descendants, you know, in the, in the form of a grand of a grandchild or their son, I forget. And he details his experience. And now the idea of using, in this case, cats and mice in representation of human beings is a trick that we see or is a, is a style that we saw from George Orwell, who, you know, of course wrote animal farm, but this idea of making these stories accessible because if mouse had been displaying human had been displaying human beings, probably banned earlier, there's arguments made that this is a book that's not um, appropriate, whatever that means. And to, you know, to myself as a teenager, and even now I go back and reread the book because it's the beginnings of understanding really what was going on just from a just from a human standpoint you know one person's experience and let's be clear the book the author of this book is telling their his family's story but doing it through these particular characters and again the reason being about sexually explicit but then also the fact that this idea that we're saying that some books are okay for some people and not for others and often what you'll find is that when that's being talked about we keep moving the goalpost we we begin by saying well you know children should not be reading this and of course i would ask we'll define when you consider a child but but then also we then move to goalposts and say well in high school i don't know if we should read this either because it's x y and z and we keep finding ways to make these books less accessible and as someone who is a, a fan of history i think anytime there is the denial of understanding human atrocity which is one of the pillars of understanding human experience i think that should all make us very chilled because my first reaction when i heard of the book being banned is well then it feels like you're throwing the book into a fire which is what the nazis had done Mm -hmm. so 
I just saw a very amazing historical parallel, which states I know off off air we've been talking a lot about some of these mm -hmm. books listed here. It's like it describes it's a very event that's going on. It's very metacognitive. So mm -hmm. that being said, Stacey, I go to you for round two. What's the next book that appeared to you? Well, as you were both talking, obviously, and you just mentioned, there are some books on here that's like, oh, wow, this is kind of happening right now, right? Fahrenheit 451 is one that comes to mind and is on this censored list and banned list. And uh, there's a quote from the book that says, well, there, there must be something in books, something we can't imagine to make a woman stay in a burning house. There must be something there. You don't stay for nothing. Mm -hmm. I think just underlines a lot of what we're, we're talking about, about these, about the books, about books, period. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I need the books on these lists. Um, yeah, in a similar vein, um, the other one for me is Brave New World. I read this one in college, and I just remember, like, it just struck me. First, it's just, like, again, beautifully written, but also, like, it was just so clever in its, in its ability to, like, speak to things that are, like, that were literally happening as I was reading it, but also happening today. Um, and the thing that comes up for me is, like, truth. These are it's a book, this particular one, but many on this list are really honing in on a truth that it's clear people want to hide. Um, and I just, it, it, it's striking to me because it's, it, you know, I try not to get into many con conspiracy theories, like rabbit holes, although I very much can, I find them fun sometimes. <laughs> um, but it just makes me, really think more about the fact that there is um it may not even really be a conspiracy <laughs> it mm. may just very much well be in our faces like mm. we just don't want certain we don't want freedom of thought quite simply mm -hmm. we don't want people we we want people to be uh to conform um and that grave new world to me is just it's all about like thinking about the ways that society tries to confine us. Um, and it's just, this one for me was just like ironic because it's like, it's doing the very thing that the book is actually talking mm -hmm. about. You know? The next book I'll go to is is a book that I've only read portions of, but but my my eight-year-old daughter has read it quite a few times, which is the the graphic novel drama by Raina, uh, I think Telgamere. I think I may be pronouncing her name correctly. Hopefully I am. Um, and it's a story about, about kids in school. One thing about my daughter I've noticed is she loves stories that have, well, drama, yes, but then also, but they're they're about people. And she occasionally reads about superheroes and stuff, specifically women superheroes. That is a very important mm -hmm. thing for her. But that book she'd read, she loved that author. And that book, that author has told a lot of her own personal stories through graphic novels. And at one point, I saw that drama had been listed as being banned, and the, the argument being that it was actually um, this had been from a public censorship case in a school in Texas, and the book had been identified or being removed from shelves for being politically, racially, and socially offensive. Now, there's that phrase again. I mentioned this at the start of this segment, and and what I found, what was really disheartening, also, was the fact that a lot of times one of the other 
themes that come up about why we make these books inaccessible to children is the fact that you know there are there's a pre not a presence i'm trying to sound spiritual about this but no it's there are organizations one of which we talked about before moms for liberty that make the argument that these books are offensive or they are you know damaging to children and here i am sitting there that all the book did for my daughter was just teach her empathy every book she's ever read every graphic novel she's ever read introduces her to to people of either different ethnicities or different sexual orientation but to her they're people and what always comes back to her is is the tension is the plot it's never occurred to her to read a book and and learn about a person of a different be it socioeconomic background gender what have you and react as though there's something negative here to her it's always about human being these are all about people and i bring her up in this case because she serves as a really good counter to the argument that some organizations make about well these books are subversive and they may teach it's teaching my kid empathy and i'm not saying that this is true for everyone but oftentimes we've always seen that with children you know this is like you know nature versus nurture right that children do not enter this world you know with an agenda unless it's about having ice cream at every meal <laughs> but it's not it's not to them so then it's a question of and we've seen this trick before politically the idea of we shield our children because we're afraid of what of what they will be exposed to and what that may do for them. And the reality is that if we're providing no context to it, what children, children will surprise you with what they take away from, because as we've all talked about here as educators, children are not empty vessels. You know, they bring values, they bring context, their own context. And it's critical that we step back and let them absorb that and engage with them in conversation as people, not just necessarily as children, but as someone who's consumed this, this body of work. And, that is the second book, and it's one of the ones that make me most sad because I've seen a I've seen a person read this several times, and the things that people accuse may happen to her has never happened. And I don't think it's I think there's a lot of fiction going on about what we think is going to take place when someone as young as eight years old is reading a book like this. This episode is brought to you by Kitcaster. Kitcaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. Kitcaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. Another book on this list, 13 Reasons Why, it addresses suicide and... Suicide is pervasive in America. It's one of the leading cause of deaths among adults. And according to according to the CDC and according to UCLA Health, it's the second leading cause of death for 15 to 24-year-olds. Mm. We need to be having conversations with our young people about things that may be impacting them that we don't understand or see. And when I was teaching, I read 13 Reasons Why in a book club with students. And the conversations we were able to have about suicide, their questions, their wonderings allowed me to bring in, you know, a professional that could talk more to them, mm -hmm. help them find different avenues for support that they may want or need. 
and make them have different understanding about suicide. Because I think sometimes what what gets missed a little is like it's final. You know, suicide is it's it's over, right? And we we all know that. Mm-hmm. obviously logically but when you're in a emotional place when everything feels lost mm-hmm. for one reason or another it it seems like it can it's the way out mm. and giving um, students the opportunity to learn more share more about what they learned understand resources they can access because we read a book together was a really powerful experience for all of us involved something a good rule for anyone that's that's doing a podcast is where it's effective is the fact that yourself or your co-host constantly talk about what's next and that's something that we do here about you know what are the other episodes that we're thinking of topics that we're sitting with and as stacy was sharing something that sat with me and something that we're going to be pursuing is having having young people on this show talking about Perhaps one of the most important things that we think about school is their sense of ownership and what they want school to provide for them. And Stacey, as you were as you were discussing the experience of reading the book with students and what students were taking away, it reminds me that, you know, why, and I think about this also with, you know, Patrice, you've talked about a, a very blanket statement you've brought up before, maybe in our first episode, school is compulsory. That's not a judgment. That is just law in this country. And at the same time, what do our young people want to get out of it. We are in a really interesting time where we are starting to remind ourselves and pay more attention to that the the voice of the student must be heard. And when we do listen, what comes up for them is what they interpret as, what should I be getting out of this? And their their answers will interest you. And Stacey, as you're talking about the experience, I imagine a room full of young people engaging in a conversation and in content in a, in this way that has far just deeper connection to them than other areas. And oftentimes in school, we try to play it safe. Well, if we stay in the lane of just, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, and what have you, we don't make any waves. And the reality is that when that happens, we're denying truly the human experience. Because also notice that Stacy let off her share with something very, very important, data. This is real. Suicide is real. The reasons for suicide are real. To look at a room full of young people and not imagine for one moment that either a student in that classroom or someone they know, or this is a specter that is out there. They expect in this case of like just the, the, the reality of, of, of it. To not acknowledge that is to almost do a disservice to engaging with children. And I say all this because something that comes up with all these books that we've all been sharing is the idea of certain themes that are, that we're trying to avoid. And we're going to touch on that in a moment. Like what did we all notice about the books that we're all sharing? Um, that being said, Patrice, let's go to you for your last, your last choice. So my last choice is uh, probably should have been my first choice. Um, <laughs> written by and it just an amazing I just know so many people black women specifically who call on this ancestor as someone who has incredibly and indelibly impacted their life their growth their experience as a human their experience as a black woman 
Um, and it so this book is Their Eyes Were Watching God by mm-hmm. Zora Neale Hurston. Mm-hmm. Um, anything by Zora Neale Hurston mm-hmm. is just uh, you will leave the book uh, changed for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, this book, I, I I think this is another one I read in college um, on my you know of my own volition, um, and I I remember just not being able to put it down. I felt so seen in a way that I hadn't experienced with any other book or um yeah it was just it was just it was remarkable so um I think about so there there are a number of quotes I have here again so there's one that says there are years that ask questions and years that answer mm-hmm. this is one that me and my, mm-hmm. my home girls, we, we go to <laughs> well what year are we dealing with are we asking or are we answering which one is it you know, mm. so we actually talked about this recently. We're in an answering year this year. So very interesting. Mm. Um, 2023. There's another one. And I actually wrote this on one of my apartments in Brooklyn. Um, Love makes your soul crawl out from its mm. hiding place. You're going to mm. deny someone the opportunity to experience that just that sentence alone and what that can evoke. Mm. And then one more um, for me, it she she wrote it was not death she feared it was misunderstanding and this one mm. struck me because i this is one of my things i just i loathe being misunderstood so i'm very thoughtful about the things i say for that for that reason i try to be very articulate and very clear about what it is i'm trying to convey because i do not like being misunderstood uh, but i think about zora neale hurston and how much in her mm-hmm. time she was deeply and gravely misunderstood and clearly still is because her book mm-hmm. is on a banned book list um, and so I just think about, to your point, Stacey, around suicide, young people who need to see this in text to feel seen in a way that maybe they wouldn't feel seen otherwise. Mm-hmm. That is my all-time favorite book. This book? Yes. Oh my gosh. It's it's totally on my top five yeah. list. I, it's just like making me want to read it again. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's so incredible. That's a, that's a really good point. Um, I was fortunate. It's that's not a book that's I'm going to share in a moment. I'm actually going to cheat and mention two books at the same time, but very thematically, or they're they're re, they're yeah, structurally and thematically they overlap a lot. But Patrice, I like your point a lot of the idea of rereading. I would we would offer that to anyone. I think about often that there were books I read in high school that I would reread in college, and it's funny because a few years go by and your perspective changes completely. Mm. And sometimes historical context is also introduced to make more sense of the book. Um, and I would, yeah, I love, I love that invitation you just offered to all of us. Just go back and reread something. Mm-hmm. I think with anything really just of that level of depth, our experience of it as young people versus when we, when we, as we're older, our life experiences changes totally. So the last, last two books I'm going to mention are Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried and Ernest Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms. Mm-hmm. Now, both books, the reason that they stand out to me is that, obviously being bad, but what they also both point to is the fact that when we think about the way we teach history in school, whether you call it social studies, whether you call it history, you know, we always find the middle route, which is textbooks. And most recently state of florida we're talking about you know um particular stand uh, standards in the history curriculum but what's powerful about books like the two i just mentioned is that they're written by people who who live the experience of what they're writing about mm-hmm. and i think about and i think about per, um i forget what you call it but 
basically, uh, primary sources. So you can make an argument that if I'm learning about the Vietnam War, to read it from someone who who was on the ground and sharing their experience. And in the case of Tim O'Brien, he you know he'd served in Vietnam, um, and the book was a way for him to really make sense of what he had gone through, and to teach others. And in the case of Hemingway, it's the same thing in World War One in the Farewell to Arms. And what scares me about banning texts like those is because what we're saying, what we can be saying is, well, if we want to teach about Vietnam, if we want to teach about World War One, what we can do is provide a very sanitized way of explaining it to someone. And when you try to sanitize history in this context, war becomes simply a case of numbers and names. Mm. You know, which countries banded together, you know, how many people died. You know, the fact that I remember vaguely that the Battle of Somme in World War One. You had one of the largest numbers of casualties, and mostly because it was one of the battles that was the onset of the machine gun. But those numbers don't mean anything. As you as you as you get older, as you try to get better context of of something of something like the Vietnam War, it's not about the fact that you know, fifty five to fifty seven thousand Americans died, but also what brought us there. What's the legacy of our relationship with Vietnam? What happens now, or what has happened to the Vietnamese since then, and in this case of the book, those who did return, they're home. They're among us. What is their experience? And thankfully, we're paying more attention to 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 mental health for the for those who've served, but in general as a country. And you know, most recently we've seen you know, the House of Representatives passing a law that allows for the beginnings of certain to look into LSD and other treatments to address uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and other th things that mentally happen to, to those in combat. But all that is to say, those books would be a gateway to truly understanding the experience of someone who was there, not in a textbook. And the fact that they would be banned means that these are ways of trying to direct students to the experience of, well, reading something sanitized, which is not really telling the entire story. So I just wanted to pop in and let our listeners know if you're in an area where you can't access banned books, there is an app called the Banned Book Club, and you can download those books. So just wanted to share that in case you're, that's your lived experience right now. I'll also offer too that we've talked about nine books here. That's not the only list, obviously, but I would invite everyone, as always, email the show. What are books that you've seen? that you enjoyed growing up, that you found formative, that you're just surprised are listed on a, are provided or added to a list of banned books. And you can email the show at theeducateusshow at gmail.com. That's all one word, theeducateusshow at gmail.com. We keep things clean and easy at the Educate US podcast. We want to hear from you. And also when we put this up, when we post this through our different social media channels, same invitation will go out. Feel free to respond to that post with books that you're surprised that you've seen on these lists. If you take anything away from this conversation, and I know you will take anything, take many things away. It's the fact that this is real. Patrice, as you were talking about, this isn't a conspiracy theory. There are organizations actively trying to make it difficult to access books. And that's something that history tells us never leads to a positive space as a parent it's our responsibility to engage with the books that our children are exposed to that are introduced to but to engage with them in a way of understanding to not shield people away because if we remember the story of the buddha in the end you can hide someone as much as you want enlightenment will still come to them
This has been the Educate US podcast, a production of Leon Media Network. For more on our show, visit us at leonmedianetwork.com/educateus.